Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm uh, delighted today to hearken back to some earlier days, but uh, perhaps not the earlier days you immediately think of. Some of you would know, uh, I don't see Dan Modisette in this service, he'll probably be in the next service, but several years ago, probably 12, 13 years ago, uh, we had a committee to champion a, a new mission statement for the church. We came up with the mission statement that's been emblazoned on our bulletin and been a part of our website. And uh, that mission statement simply says, we exist to proclaim the greatness of God through Jesus Christ as the eternal hope of all peoples. That's our mission statement. Dan was the chairman of that committee, and I don't remember a single other person on the committee. If you were one of them, please forgive me. Uh, I, I remember Dan standing up in front of the church and presenting that statement. And uh, it, has, it has served me well, served our church well, I think. But it, it's the words of men. It's not the, necessarily the words of God. Uh, but it has been helpful. Uh, and I want to speak this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as to why that statement capsulizes uh, what we believe God has told us to do. So I've simply called this message Proclaiming the Greatness of God Through Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Proclaim the greatness of God through Jesus Christ. And we could go to many paragraphs in the scripture that would support this, but certainly this one. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, and we'll just read through the very first verse of chapter 6. So just a few verses. Let's begin in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, and this is the royal ambassador motto, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We live in a world today that is increasingly skeptical of church. 
Religious people are universally, seemingly, mocked in the culture. So whether it's news, or whether it's entertainment programming, whether it's in song, uh, in any number of other cultural uh, banners, if you will, people who hold to strong religious convictions are universally scorned. So if you find yourself in a minority as regards your faith, well, I would just say, come on in, the water's fine. I would simply say to you, if they persecuted the Savior, our Master, why would they not persecute me? Well, they will. They do in some minor measure. As a pastor, uh, I have seen in the old days, uh, if you will, a greater respect for people in the ministry. That's not a big deal to me. I'm not whining about it. Uh, I, I figure pastors sort of had a gravy train back in the day, and uh, the gravy train is drying up in some respects, and it's all right. Uh, if, it, if it dries up even more, it's okay. That said, we have seen a deterioration in our culture of the notion that somehow religion is an asset. But when you read the New Testament, and that's what you ought to be doing more than gauging what the culture thinks. But when you read the New Testament, the people who came to Christ and met Christ and walked with Christ and saw the work of Christ and heard the teaching of Christ were never the same. Profoundly never the same. 2 Corinthians is one of the letters attributed to the Apostle Paul who you'll recall is a pronounced Pharisee in the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. He supervises the stoning of the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen. The garments of those who stoned Stephen laid at the feet of a young Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus. A hot shot on the road to being somebody among the religious hierarchy of his day. But in Acts chapter 9, he's on the way to Damascus, and he encounters the Lord. The Lord stops him on the road and blinds him and drives him to his knees and speaks from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked the question perhaps that all of us would ask, well, who are you? Who are you? I am the Lord, the Lord Christ. And Saul's life is never, never the same. Because meeting Christ, his life is forever different. So I want to show you that this particular paragraph that we just read illustrates, I think, and if you will, provides for us two questions that help us to measure our own lives as regards that and help us to measure our commitment to Christ and his church. So I would ask the first question, growing out of verses 14, 15, 16, and following, have you ever had an event that changed your life dramatically? The answer to that is yes. You need to just admit yes. If you're married and you don't claim marriage, you're not thinking well. All right? Marriage will change your life. I used to think I was an easygoing guy and that I could live with anybody. I grew up with three brothers, and I never had a room to myself, ever. I always had a roommate growing up. It was a brother, always a brother. At different times, we couldn't get along, and so we changed roommates. You know what I mean? 
So for a while, it was my older brother, then it was a younger brother, back to my older brother, back to my younger brother, a different younger brother, and so forth and so on. But, uh, you know, mom and dad just kind of managed that. And I thought, well, you know, I'm the easygoing one. The reason why this was successful is because I'm so easygoing. So I went to college, and I roomed with three guys I went to high school with, you might call my best friends. That lasted for one semester. It imploded. Imploded. One of those was Susan's brother, by the way. And uh, so that said, I, I will tell you there are several things in my life that have changed my life. And living with somebody who's not me has changed my life. My, one of my favorite stories, Susan does not remember this. Don't even ask her about it. She'll say, Greg is wrong, but, he, but I am right. She's in the second service today. She may be watching this at home right now, but we'll see. Um, but when we got married, four days after we married, we went to a grocery store. I, re- I can tell you the store. I can tell you the aisle. She doesn't even remember the thing even happened, but it happened. In the home that I grew up in, we, we used brown paper sacks for the trash can. We did not have an elaborate trash system. Judge me all you want, but we didn't. All right? Brown paper sacks. So mom threw everything in the brown paper sack, took it to the can. We went to buy our first groceries, four days married. We came to aisle number four, which was the trash bag aisle. We came to the trash bag. She stopped. I didn't. I was pushing the buggy about half full by this time. We didn't have anything, so we're buying everything. And uh, I told her, we don't need any of that. We're going to use brown paper sacks. Susan turned around, looked at me, and said, I am not your mother. And I knew then it was game on. (laughs) My life would never be the same. And it hasn't. And so from that day until this, I realized that Susan spends the money that I make. And she decides. And it's fine with me. I'm delighted, by the way, with the new arrangement. I have zero complaints. But it changed my life. Have you ever had an event that changed your life? Probably a financial event, maybe a medical event, a physical event, maybe a relational event. Surely you've had an event that changed your life and altered the course, changed the course perhaps of your entire life. Well, the apostle talks about that here in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. There is a time in the apostle's life when he came face to face with the love of Christ. And if you're a Christian, you have the same experience. None of us had the experience of the Apostle Paul. None of us were blinded on a road and driven to our knees. None of us have had that experience. And yet, we, were, we are also guilty of being confronted by the love of Christ. There was a time in my life when I did not fully comprehend the love of Christ, and there became a time in my life when I all the more comprehended the love of Christ, and I was born again. And God set me on a new road, on a new trajectory. You'll notice he says in verse 14, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Have you ever had an event that changed your life, that you would live for him? The apostle speaks of this very, very uh, powerfully in Philippians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it on the screen for you. There in verse 7 and following, he he describes his life and he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the, righteous, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The apostle is saying that his life was forever altered. His life was forever changed. Have you ever had an event like that in your life? Well, I would suggest to you that your Christian experience is one of those events. I would tell you that comparatively, you could list any number of worldly things that would have happened in our lives, material things, relational things, financial things, health things that would have happened in our lives that, that changed the course of our lives. Those are all wonderful. They're all legitimate. They're your story, my story. They matter. Those things are of consequence. However, none of those things are of eternal consequence. The fact that you're married or not married, that you have children or don't have children, you work in a certain a profession or don't work in a certain profession, maybe had a bad experience, had a good experience, maybe you had some financial windfall in your life, so forth and so on. The, the fact that all of these things may or may not have happened to you or anybody else you know have nothing to do with eternity. But I want you to know something, friend. If you're not a Christian here today, if you've never put your trust in the one who gave himself for you, that died in your place and was raised from the dead, that he might live for you and claim you as his own, if you've never become his own, that has enormous eternal significance. And you must contend with that. Have you ever had an event that changed your life? If you've never come to Christ, I invite you today to consider Christ. You see, as a church, this is why we are committed to these things. This is why we proclaim the greatness of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can die and did die. Jesus Christ is the only one who could be raised sinless. And he was raised sinless. So since Jesus Christ is the only one, and he is the only one who could and has. He, therefore, is the hero of everything we do. God is great because God has done enormous things. He's created the world out of nothing. He has created us. He has sustained us all these days. And the reason that we're alive and that we enjoy any measure of life or any joy or have any measure of joy in relationships, the fact that we are known or could be known, or, and on and on we could go. The fact that these things exist are a tribute to the greatness of God, the glory of God. But none of those things compare to the fact that God gave his son to be scorned and mocked and humiliated by the very people and the very world that he created. And then raised him from the dead in power and in victory. And has seated him in the heavenly places awaiting his return. To put an end to all the shenanigans of man. 
If you have missed Jesus, you have missed the greatest thing, the best thing, and frankly, one day, the only thing that's going to matter. Don't miss Jesus. And don't mock a church or people of faith who have made it their life's ambition to proclaim this good news. Don't dare sit around and put up with people mocking the notion that people who are devoted to God and devoted to Christ and announce Christ and proclaim Christ and live for Christ and sacrifice for Christ are somehow second class or ignoramuses or somehow people who are, who are beaten into submission by some patriarchal society or on and on the, the, the pablum goes from the culture. That somehow all of this is a shell game. All of this is a scam. That all of this church stuff that you're giving attention to and that matters so much in our lives is in fact of little consequence and for them, no consequence. Well, I'm reminded that if you've never had a life-changing event with Jesus... I can't imagine why you would think much of anybody who had. So we should be careful that we don't take our cues from the culture. The culture doesn't love the Savior, but we do. And we are committed to the Savior. And everything the Savior's about, we're about. And that which the Savior's about that we're not about, we need to get busy getting about. We need to find out what Jesus is doing and follow him. We don't get to write this stuff. We don't get to, to manufacture this stuff. We don't get to decide this stuff. We get to follow the one who does all that. Our God is great, and he has done great things. But there is nothing that God has done greater for me, greater for you, than to give his only begotten son so that you might not die, but have everlasting life. And as a church, we are committed to that until we die. We want to be about telling people about Christ. We want them to be saved and rescued. So have you ever had an event that changed your life? I hope that event includes coming to faith in Christ. There's a second thing I want you to see in this paragraph. Notice in verse 18. Do you have a sense of what it cost to give you your life? Do you have a sense of what it costs to give you your life? Notice how the apostle phrases it, verse 18 and following. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. All this is from God. Do you have a sense of what it cost to give you your life? If you've had a life-changing event, do you have a sense of what it might have cost in order for you to experience that life-changing event? The sacrifice is made, or perhaps the, the price paid. I think of it often with, uh, with our children grown and now having children themselves. We're watching our adult children parent 
our grandchildren and watching them spend money that we used to spend and now that we don't have to spend, right? And we watch that and we uh, cringe and want to help and they are uh, pretty devoted about not letting us help. We want to fix that and fix that and help with that and help with that. Maybe you have uh, children or grandchildren that uh, just delight it when, delight when you bring the money. Ours, ours are quite the reverse. It's been an amazing thing. I didn't raise them that way. I was, I was always quick to receive a handout <laughs> uh, from my parents. If my parents wanted to help. Sure, Dad, anything you want to do would be great. My kids are quite the, quite the reverse. They protest all the time. So uh, maybe it's because they feel guilty about how much money I spent on them growing up. Probably not, though. Probably not. Second thought, I don't think they, they feel guilty about that. But I did spend a lot of money on them. And then I sent them to a Christian college, and my life's never been the same ever since. Um, but do you have a sense of what it costs to give you your life, your quality of life? Do you have a sense of what sacrifices were made or prices paid? Do you have a sense of, of, of the benefit that you've gained from the sacrifice of others? You know, when you think about your parents and the sacrifices they made for you, you can't possibly know all those sacrifices. You can't know how they got up early or stayed up late or worked extra or sacrificed or sacrificed for themselves so that they might give to you. You can't know all the stories. You know some. You know the ones they wanted you to know or maybe the ones that leaked out, but you don't know all the stories. And then your own children. Your own children don't know. They don't know what sacrifices you've made. And they can't know. And I suggest that they, they don't know. It's, it's a waste of time. In fact, it, it's really a bad look on parents who are always whining about how much money they spend on their children. I, I suggest don't go there. But I do think as a child, or perhaps now as an adult, it's not inappropriate to recognize that there are people who spend a lot of money so that I might have the life I live. Think of this verse. Verse 18, all this is from God, who, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. I was reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. Think of that. Reconciled to God. That is interesting language. I never knew there was a disagreement, right? I mean, you're growing up as a child. You don't know that people are on the outs. You don't understand that so-and-so doesn't get along with so-and-so. You don't understand these adult dynamics and these drama situations. You don't get all of that. Even as a child without Christ, I had no idea that I needed to be reconciled with God. I had no idea that somehow God was at war and even at war with me in some way. I didn't know I needed reconciliation. I never had an idea how bad it truly was. I was too young to understand. Maybe you. Now that you're an adult, maybe you should think more deeply about it. What cost has been paid in order to give you the life that you've given? The apostle is celebrating that God has reconciled him to God. Your life was not good with God. You were not at peace with God. You were not in line with God. The Bible is clear how this is accomplished. Colossians chapter 1, regarding Christ. These words, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He said, well, I never knew we were out of sorts. I never knew that God was angry. I never knew that God was angry at me. I never knew that I was doomed and damned for hell. I didn't know this. May I tell you the culture that we live in today is convinced that somehow there is no hell, and if there is a hell, I'm not going. These are lies. They've been duped. That's like telling somebody with terminal cancer, stage four cancer, that they're going to be okay. Well, they might be okay, but they'll be okay by the grace of God, not by the benefit of cancer. Nobody wants to be lied to. Nobody wants to give a placebo to somebody or receive a placebo. Don't give me something that's a lie and somehow think that's going to benefit me. But the world has bought hook, line, and sinker this lie from the devil that somehow they're okay with God and that God is not angry. Do you have a sense of what it costs to give you your life? Do you have a sense of what it costs to create peace between you and God? I always think of this paragraph in Revelation chapter 20. Pardon me, chapter 19, verse 11. At the end, there's going to be a battle. This is kind of the short paragraph narrative of the battle. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Note, he doesn't make lunch. Although somebody's about to become food in a different kind of way. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. You think of that. I mean, people want Jesus to be all warm and cuddly. He's going to show up in battle gear. A robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The armies of heaven. You know, how big is that army? Maybe you don't like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but they got that right. You got those war scenes in Lord of the Rings. And just like, so it looks like the army just goes on and on and on and on. Do you know why? Because they're trying to picture that right there. The armies of heaven. You know how many soldiers make up God's army? Don't say you do because you don't. We're never told. It just simply says myriads of myriads or thousands of thousands. Thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of people 
will step onto the battlefield with Jesus. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of, and here it is, the fury of the wrath of El Shaddai, God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burned with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I never knew God was mad, but I do now. I do know that God is full of grace and that God is a loving God in ways that I cannot calculate. But I also know that God is capable of getting angry in ways that I cannot calculate. And one day there will be a final battle. And Jesus himself will ride in on that battlefield and he will win. And he will win big. Do you have a sense of what it costs to save you from that battle? Do you have a sense of how important it is that you be saved from that battle? Do you have a sense of how important it is that you don't have to be one of those lying on the battlefield whose carcasses are being eaten by buzzards? Do you have a sense? I hope so. Because that's precisely the way God wants us to feel to feel grateful, to feel full of life, to enjoy the kindness of God and the goodness of God and to enjoy what God has done. I think of the church that way. You know, what's, what's the purpose of a church? Well, the purpose of a church is to proclaim the greatness of God through Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of a church. Proclaim the greatness of God through Jesus Christ and then to enjoy Christ together. So we preach Christ And we say, hallelujah, he's our Christ, he's our Savior, he's our Lord, he's our King of kings and Lord of lords, he's ours, he's mine, he can be yours, come celebrate with us. We gather together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for the purpose of lifting our voices, lifting our hearts, lifting our souls to to proclaim gratitude to this God, to say glory to God, goodness of God, the kindness of God, that I am not going to be on that battlefield one day. God has sacrificed his only begotten son and raised him from the dead and given him the place above every place so that I might have peace, so that I might have life that I might have comfort, that I might have joy. And when my loved ones die in the Lord, I can know they are going to be with the Lord. They're not going to the lake of fire that burns eternally with sulfur. 
They're not going to condemnation. They're not going to rejection. They're going to a God who loves them and loves them so much he gave his only son for them to secure and procure them for himself. God used Christ to break down the dividing wall of hostility between me and God. Do I have a sense of how much that cost me? Well, comparatively, it didn't cost me a thing. Do I have a sense of what it cost God? Well, comparatively, it cost God a great deal. And I want to, until I die, I want to do as the apostle said in Philippians 3. I want to forget what lies behind, and I want to forge ahead to what lies ahead. And I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 3. The power. I want to know Christ. I want to see Christ do marvelous things. And I want to proclaim Christ to everyone who will listen. I want you to join me in that. As a church, that needs to be our DNA. You cut us, we bleed this. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the ministry of proclaiming the greatness of God through Jesus Christ. That's our ministry. That's our work. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. And everything else is just the infrastructure that makes all of that happen. How do we get in a building program? Because a building is necessary in order to make all that other happen. We need a place to gather. We need a place to to meet. We need a place to train children. We need a place to train students. We need a place, place to evangelize students and reach out to our community. We need a place to serve together. All of these things require building, require property. Why are these things a part of who we are? Because we are committed to making much of Jesus until we can't make much of anything anymore. We have to keep doing this. The job never changes. It only gets better. Really. It does. It gets better because God gives us new people to help us in this work. Gives us new relationships outside of the congregation to help us with this work. It's a big old world out there. Seven plus billion people. And most of them don't know Jesus, and about half of them never heard of Jesus. we got a lot to do. And we only got one lifetime to do it. And I'm thankful that you care. And I'm thankful that you, you've always cared. This congregation has always cared. It's not, it's not time for a history lesson, but I'll, I just celebrate the way the Lord has continued to work. 60 plus years here. Praise God. Praise God. So many people have sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed. And they continue to sacrifice for the glory of God. And then I just conclude quickly. Verse 20. I would ask this question. How are you working so that others might have the same experience? How are you serving so that others might have the same experience? Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. It turns out God could, you know, write stuff in the sky, but he doesn't. God could drop leaflets from 
airplanes or clouds, but he doesn't. God could do all kinds of miracles and magic shows to bring about his message on earth, but he doesn't. Instead, God has opted for this strategy. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Little old us, just us. Who's going to do this big job, us? Well, we're not sufficient, I know, but God is. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we appeal to you. Working together with him, we preach. Working together with him, we teach. Working together with him, we serve. Working together with him, we dialogue. Working together with him, we help. Working together with him, we give. Working together with him, we help others who don't have the capacity to help themselves. They don't even know that they have a problem, but they do. And we have to tell them they have a problem. The world is coming to an end and they don't know it. Jesus is going to be a judge and they don't know it. They're not at peace with God and they don't know it. Things are not good and they don't know it. And things are going to get worse and they don't know it. And if we don't tell them, how will they be saved? How will they be reconciled? How will they be reconciled to God? So I would ask simply, how are you working? There's a million ways to work. Some of it involves money. Some of it involves words. A lot of it involves hands and feet. A lot of it involves praying. A lot of it is done so that most of us will never know of that piece or that piece or that piece of work that was done. I just implore you today, be busy working. This is the ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to work together with God. It's God's work, but he's ordained that it be accomplished through little old me and little old you. We are the servants of God. We are the means whereby God has ordained to accomplish his will. We are important. In fact, we are essential. Maybe some days you don't feel essential. Don't trust your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you. You are essential. Trust the word of God. Because the word of God has never lied to you. Let us go forth and let us proclaim Christ. And let us work to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. Let us proclaim Jesus Christ as the means whereby we come to know the greatness of God. The greatness in his love, the greatness in his affection for us, and the greatness of his provision for us for eternal life. There is one Savior. His name is Christ. And we shall proclaim him and proclaim him and proclaim him until we die. God give us grace to do everything he wants us to do and to give us the money and the people to make it all happen. We are dependent upon God. And that's a great place to be. Let us look to God together. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, we beg of you, be reconciled to God. God has changed my life and he's changed the lives of so many. Don't be left out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness today as we reflect on your mercies. We uh, rejoice in them. We pray your mercies 
will continue for us as we not only live for Christ, but as we advance the cause of Christ with those who don't know Christ. We pray that you would help us to be evangelistic, that you would help us to bear the good news, that you would help us to reason well from the scriptures and to advance the cause of Christ. Lord, we love you so, and we thank you that you love us. In Christ's name I pray.